We're going to look at this story in just a few minutes, or during the next few minutes, and ponder the resurrection. And so I'm going to just briefly ask God again to come and help us right now to be attentive and to hear and see with our eyes of faith the risen Savior. E, what you want us to see, Father, I... I pray that you would help those that are here that may be skeptics of the resurrection, either to change and, and have eyes of faith, or God, would you open doors and so just, just do a work here in, in their hearts. For every believer in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, For everyone who is saved here this morning and having put their trust in Christ and have their sins forgiven, I pray that we would treasure this more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris, we're getting a little bit of humming here. He is alive. He's alive. I want to read to you the story of the words that came from this Russian man's mouth, this Russian communist, atheist, who had never, ever heard the name of Jesus before in his life. This is in the Cold War, probably 50 or 60 years ago. Richard Wormbrandt, in his book, Tortured for Christ, writes, I read this man, this Russian officer, or this Romanian communist officer, one of the, the Sermon on the Mount and one of the parables of Jesus. And after hearing them, he danced around in the room with rapturous joy, proclaiming, what a wonderful beauty. How could I live without knowing this Christ? It was the first time that I saw someone so joyful in Christ. Then I made the mistake. I read to him the passion and crucifixion of Jesus without preparing him for this. He had not expected it. And when he had heard how Christ was beaten, how he was crucified, and then at the end he died, he fell into an armchair. And he began to weep bitterly. He had believed in a Savior, and now his Savior was dead. I looked at him, and I was ashamed. I had called myself a Christian, a pastor, and a teacher of others. And I had never shared the sufferings of Christ as this Russian officer had now shared them. Looking at him, it was like seeing Mary Magdalene weeping at the foot of the cross, faithfully weeping when Jesus was a corpse in the tomb. Then I read the story of the resurrection and watched his expression change. He had not known that his Savior rose from the tomb. When heard this wonderful news, he beat his knees and swore using very dirty but very holy profanity, he says. This was his crude manner of speech. Again, he rejoiced, shouting for joy. He's alive. He's alive. And he danced around the room once more, overwhelmed with happiness. What is the resurrection? That's what Easter is. The resurrection is... The raising from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, as every gospel records, very possibly April 5th, A.D. 33, 1,986 years ago, 
Jesus had died a gory death. The hands of Romans instigated by his own people, the Jewish leaders. All of this to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures and to atone for the sins of all who would put their trust in him. He told his disciples in Mark three different times, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. But I want you to hear this. Jesus' resurrection was not simply a coming back from the dead like Lazarus. Now that thing's, that's big enough. But it wasn't just, just Lazarus in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead and Lazarus would later die. No, his resurrection from the dead was like a first fruits. There's a first fruits, but then there's a full harvest coming. A life in which his body was perfect. It was no longer subject to weakness or aging or death but would live on eternally. Indeed, Jesus' resurrection body on that Easter morning, he had put on immortality, imperishability. He would not decay. Glory and power and spirituality. Christ's resurrection ensured many things. And among us, it ensured that everyone who had put their trust in Christ The reason why they did that is because Jesus Christ in resurrection, like Jay read in 1 Peter, would bring a new birth to people in this world. Regeneration, we call it. The resurrection was the source of that. If if anyone is spiritually alive and believe where before they didn't believe, or they hated God, or they even just didn't love God like they ought to, And now they do, it's because of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ working in lives. And and we call ourselves saved if we've put our trust in Christ. Um, It's because we were justified by his death. But it says in Romans 4, and he was raised for our justification. And someday all those who find themselves in Jesus having put their trust, believed upon him, when, when the, in the last day, he's going to raise all of the dead from, from worm, or I should say, deteriorated bodies all over the world, in the earth or in the sea, or wherever they might be, he will raise them up and bring them into judgment to eternal life or et- eternal punishment depending on what they did with Jesus here on earth. Okay, the resurrection changed everything. The sun rose that Easter morning. And whether you admit that it rose, it rose and it changed everything. The light has come upon the world in a way that it never had before. If Jesus died and then rose from the dead, then you may like some of Jesus' teaching, but you might say, I, I, but I don't like his other parts of his teaching, that, that harsh stuff. Well, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't raise from the dead, don't accept any of it. But if he did, it changes everything. That's how the first hearers heard it. So unbelievable, but if it's real, I hope it's real. And if it's real, 
changes my life. I just want to, Russ read John 20, from John 20, I want to just point out to you five things about the resurrection real quickly that I think are so important. Uh, one, I, one, I have a neighbor who's just growing and to know this Jesus, and he loves to use this word. Sometimes I'll ask him, how are you doing today? And he'll say, epical. I'm doing epical. He just means, I'm doing grand I'm doing really good today. The word epic, epical actually has to do with the idea of on a grand or huge scale, um, huge scale, momentous. So here are five epical things about the resurrection. The resurrection is real, and the resurrection is personal, and the resurrection is merciful, and the resurrection is warning. And it is a call to believe, five. I hope we see that. First of all, the resurrection is real. Skeptics don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead primarily because they embrace a philosophical argument or presupposition that miracles just don't happen. And people don't raise from the dead, they would say. And therefore, let's just ignore any other evidence. And I would say, we can't do that. Just because you haven't seen a resurrection, even though you haven't seen clearly a miracle. And some of you might say, I have. I have seen a miracle. There, there are at least... Faith in God and through Jesus Christ and Christianity isn't just following evidence to where it goes. Rational belief, and yes, you have it. But let me say, it includes some of that. The Christ, our Christian faith is anchored on real facts and evidence, and so is the resurrection. And all of all the evidence of the resurrection and its realness, I want to give you three, and they're actually they're, they're kind of tied into this text. Here's three evidences. First of all, there was an empty tomb. This passage we find early in the morning on the first day. Here we, I'll summarize it, but we, we find that Mary is coming to the tomb and she wants to see the grave and she comes, Mary Magdalene, and she sees that it's empty. She's surprised by this and she runs and he tells the other disciples and we find two disciples, Peter, and then this unnamed disciple that almost everybody agrees is John, the guy that wrote this book. And he's saying, hey, by the way, I'm there. That's how I'm writing this firsthand information. John and Peter show up. They look in there. There's empty tomb. Uh, now, here's the thing is historians recognize, even non-Christian historians recognize there was an empty tomb. There was a problem. If, here's the thing is, if there wasn't an empty tomb on that day and it was just a fabricated story, um, well, there was enough skeptics of Christianity or there were enough opponents of those disciples, they would have produced the corpse See, nope, they're lying. Here's the corpse. This was Jesus of Nazareth. Nobody did that. In the early church, there is no history of memorializing the tomb or worshiping at the tomb like any other religious experience would have done. And the reason was it was an empty tomb. There was no body to go because something happened that changed everything. And in this story, we find... Peter and John coming to this tomb, looking in there, and Mary just runs out, but... Peter goes in and he sees grave clothes and he sees the head wrapping laying there. And it says here that 
John ponders and looks, and we find the other disciple, verse 8, who had reached the tomb first, went and he saw. That word has to do with the idea of he theorized. He looked and he was thinking, grave robbers, that's what they're thinking first. Jesus' body's not here, it must be grave robbers. They were common in that day. That's what Mary thinks when she talks to the gardener and says, the grave robbers, do you know where they, or, or gardener, did you take them? Just tell me where you put him. And as John looks at those grave clothes, he thinks, there's no way this is the mark of a grave robber. They don't take the clothes off the body. They take them, and then they take the clothes later because they want all the wealthy 75 pounds of of fragrance and expensive balming that was put on them. They were going to want that. That's not what's going on here. We don't know in this passage if it meant that it looked like the grave clothes were just like, they just fell down on themselves, like as though Jesus came out of the body. They don't know, but he theorized, and it says he believed. There was an empty tomb in this passage. The problem of history, of Christianity, the first thing about the resurrection is there is an empty tomb. You see, if there wasn't an empty if there, there was an empty tomb and they needed to figure out what was going on. But that's not enough that there was an empty tomb. tomb. Um, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, I, we, have a, we have a member in our church. He's working today at a funeral home because it's his holiday to work there, Nick. And he is an embalmer. He's been doing this for about 15 years. And I asked him, I said, I said about how many bodies have you done over those 15 years? And he said about 5,000. And I said, has any of them ever been lost? And he said, just one. When I came to the hospital to get it, there was an argument among family of what funeral home it was going to go. And that was the only loss of a body, at least from my perspective. But nothing like this. It's lost. There's something wrong. There's an empty tomb. I mean, (laughs) yesterday, and I'm still dealing with this, our whole family, we got this uh, Amazon Fire TV thing, and we got a remote that remote's missing. I mean, I mean, I would invite you to come over and look for it because you, you, I don't think you will find it. It is gone, and I don't think our dog took it either. But, but, here's, but here's the thing. There's, I don't think it walked away. I didn't think it rose from its dead, dead nature and walked away. Something happened to it. I'm thinking in my mind, there's nowhere in my imagination right now that a miracle happened with that remote. That's just not where I'm going right now. (laughs) You see, the empty tomb is not quite enough. It's not at all enough. It was for John, because I think John remembered. It says he believed. I think that's an important word. I think John thought, okay, Jesus said on the third day he would rise. He did it. And I think he's walking back trying to figure out what's going on and what's happening next. The second evidence is there's eyewitnesses. This is really important. Do you see the eyewitnesses in this passage? I'm not going to spend time to read all of them. The eyewitnesses, we find first, the very first eyewitness is Mary. Comes to Mary Magdalene. She thinks it's the gardener. And she, she says, and he says, Mary. She knows it's Jesus. She proclaims the Lord. Then he appears to the other disciples. 
He comes into that room and he breathes on them. He talks to them. We find in other accounts he eats food with them. He spends weeks with them. There's eyewitnesses and historians say, I mean, this happened. There's, there's evidence, whether you like it or not, there's this, this evidence, so much so that 20 years after these events that took place, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter called to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, he said, this is what's been recorded, that Christ rose from the dead and he appeared, and he says, first to Cephas, that's Peter, and then he appeared to the other disciples, and he appeared to James, and he appeared to so-and-so, and it says and he appeared to 500 at one time. Most are still alive but some have gone to sleep, meaning some have died. And why is he writing that letter just 20 years? It's a public document being spread around the Roman Empire to, in order to, to say they're alive and they're still with us. So if you don't believe me, check my sources. There's no historical event in any type of history that would deny these kind of eyewitness accounts and say, no, it never happened. That's a second evidence. It's not enough for everyone. In fact, there are many people that will say, okay, maybe that's the case. They still, this is not going to save you just to believe, oh, this happened. But the third, I guess, I guess with the remote, the only way I'd really believe is if there was an eyewitness and all of a sudden started to say to me, I watched the remote walk away and I saw it living or I saw it doing something like that. The third thing that I want you to see that is the impact on disciples. The third evidence of the resurrection is the impact of the disciples or his followers. We find in this story that Jesus comes and he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to send you just like my father sent you. And, and then he, he comes to Thomas and he, he does the same to Thomas, and then he gives this invitation at the end. This letter was written, this John, Gospel John, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of Jesus' resurrection. The rest of the New Testament Bible is written by, by some of these men, including the Apostle Paul, who Jesus appeared to later on, in order, and, and Christianity spread in such an amazing way. There is no explanation for the way it had an impact other than the fact that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. How, how can we explain that these marginal, poor, few men and women, how could they develop a confidence and a fearlessness that enabled them to spread the gospel throughout the whole world at the cost of their own lives? Some have thought the disciples stole the body, but people don't die for a hoax, and that's what they were doing. They, they, were, they were going about, and this Christianity spread because they knew and it says that there was 500 of them and they saw this with their own eyes. This was not an hallucination. As one novelist, Japanese novelist believer wrote, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we're forced to believe that what he did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. And so if we try to explain what the changed lives of the early Christians and the changed world from there on out, we may find ourselves making even greater leaps of faith than if we believed in the resurrection itself. The resurrection is real. But the resurrection is also personal. 
Oh, I want you to hear that this morning, brothers and sisters or friends or visitors. I don't know where you are in your flock of faith. Do you see the personal nature of this story? And what I mean by personal, it has world-changing implications, but it personally lands on people. You see how Jesus comes to Mary? Why are you weeping? They have taken my Lord. Mary. And immediately she recognized Rabboni. She knew it was her teacher. She knew it was her Lord. The resurrection has been personally transforming lives by encountering them over the last 1900 of years. Not physically mostly, because only a, only a 500, 600, 700, a small amount of number per, compared to the rest of believers in the world actually saw him. But through the eyewitness account, through this message being preached, the eyes of their faith has seen and heard the voice of the Lord by his Holy Spirit has been changed. Has that been true of you? The resurrection is personally applicable to our lives. You see that it personally came and landed upon doubting Thomas. I mean, there's another reason why we can't believe this is a fabricated story hundreds of years later. There's no way if you're trying to build a religion, you make up stories about having one of your founding, founding leaders, Thomas, be a doubter. That's embarrassing unless it really took place. And you wouldn't use Mary, a woman who women in Jewish courts at that time were not admissible, so why would you use a woman as an eyewitness? In fact, all four Gospels bring women into the, as the first witnesses unless it really happened. But it came personally to these people. Has the resurrection personally impacted you? Has it personally come to you and changed your life in a personal way. Jesus really rose from the dead. Have you seen the Lord in your life? The resurrection is personal and it reaches Jews and Gentiles and Africans and Americans and white and black and Asian, Latino and rich and poor, sick and healthy, intelligent and slow, all people. He comes and he touches and speaks to in a very personal way in the resurrection. But I want you to see also that the resurrection, thirdly, is merciful. You can't help but see the mercy here if you really ponder deeply. There's, you, you have to pull out and see a, a fuller way in which the mercy of God is seen in all of the resurrection, where you see Jesus dying on the cross for sins, Father forgiving, he's bringing grace and mercy, but I want you to see the mercy of God. Mercy is giving to us or to someone what we don't deserve and especially what wouldn't be expected. And we see the mercy of God pictured in the very first eyewitness of the risen Lord, and that is a woman named Mary Magdalene. Legend tells us that Mary Magdalene was a former prostitute. Not a prostitute by this time. She was already a disciple of Jesus. But she may have been a prostitute. We're not sure about that. That's not in the Bible. It's more in legend. What we do know is that in Luke 8, well, Satan was fully in control of Mary Magdalene. So much so that seven demons possessed her. And Jesus said, they'll no longer possess you, Mary. And, she became, and they were removed from her, and she believed and became a follower of Jesus. And so God decided that when he raised his son from the dead, 
in his mercy said, who am I going to choose? I'm going to choose a woman who's lowly in that culture at that time and a woman who has a past and a woman who had been completely controlled by Satan, first eyewitness of Jesus. He's the first one who's going to hear the words of the resurrected Lord and hear her name. Oh God, I, I want to cry out to you and say to you, whether you are a believer or you are seeking or you're not seeking at all, the resurrection means that Jesus comes with mercy and grace. He only saves people that know they're bad enough to need a Savior, which is true of all of us. The problem is we don't get that yet. We don't truly think it's as bad as it really is. But Jesus comes and he breaks through, opens our eyes, and mercifully meets us where we are. And we humbly accept the fact that we are so bad we needed God to come and die for our sins and be raised from the dead and then be united to him for the only way for God to accept us. As hard as it is sometimes for us to understand, we need that grace and mercy. And the resurrection means mercy is there. And we see it here. We see the mercy in God stooping to, I mean, He's God, raised from the dead. He's the Son of God. Why would He take this doubting disciple Thomas and stoop to His foolish, I gotta touch His side or touch His hands or I'll never believe? And he comes to him and he mercifully reaches and he says, Thomas, here, here, see my wounds. Thomas weeps, my Lord and my God. God is so merciful to you and me. It could be that he has you here right now today in order for you to actually, he's been, he's stooping to you, he's reaching out to you and he's saying, believe, and if you believe it's going to change everything, so watch out, but it, it's what you were made for, it's what you need, it's the only answer, he is the resurrected Lord, accept his mercy and bow the knee. Not only is it real, not only is it personal and merciful, but it's also warning. The resurrection is a warning. The cross defeated death, sin, and Satan. The army of Satan was disarmed and humiliated on the cross as we saw or heard from Pastor Jay last week in Colossians chapter 2. The resurrection is proof that there is a reigning king. The resurrection is proof that there is a loud proclamation that Jesus is the man. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah King is here. Of all the prophecies of the Old Testament, He's coming, but He's going to come and He's going to judge. And I want you to hear this. The resurrection, this is not as clear in chapter 20, but you get it in the rest of the book that John proclaimed, what Peter proclaimed, is that... Because Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus is king, and someday he's going to return. He might return today. He might return next week. You may not have, this might be your last warning. This might be your last hearing of a message where you accept him as king and bow the knee to him or not. It says in Acts 17 that the times of ignorance... In the Old Testament, God overlooked in some ways, but he didn't overlook sin, and he st sin still mattered... But 
He now commands every person to repent of their sins. Because, why? Because he fixed a day in which he will judge the world with righteousness. How? How will God do that? By a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He's raised from the dead, Savior to all who embrace him. But someday he will judge, and he will judge fiercely. He will judge fairly. And everyone who has not bowed the knee in humble faith and repentance will be cast into eternal death and darkness with no hope of forgiveness. And all who put their trust in Christ will mercifully, not by their works and not by their merit, but only by God's mercy, will forever enjoy the inheritance of joy and communion with Him and pleasures forevermore. So be warned in the resurrection. Repent and turn to Christ. He is King. Follow Him. So the last thing I say to you, which is the end of this book, really, the conclusion of all of John, even though we have one more chapter, he decides to give us the conclusion of it. And he gives us, really, that the resurrection is a call to believe. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which were not written in this book. Read the book. But, but then I want you to read the book, he says. These are written. All these signs were written, including this sign, the resurrection, that you may believe you'd see the evidence. You'd see the eyewitnesses. Chapter 19, John says, I saw the, I saw the spear go in. I saw it go out and water came out. I saw these things. I saw the the water turned to wine. He was real. I saw him change and do transforming things in the lives of people. I saw him raised from the dead so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. He gives life to all who believe. And so this really should ask us, who is Christ? What has he done? And what will you do with that? This passage says he is the Christ. It's not his last name. He's king. He's the promised Messiah, the anointed one. Oh, would you believe that he's the true king and it changes your life if you accept that kingship? It needs to. You bow the knee to the king Jesus. That's the proclamation of the good news. He's now king. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's going to come to judge. And he's right now ruling through his spirit in this world. Even though it takes faith sometimes to see that. Oh, bow the knee to King Jesus. Jesus died on the cross in order to save all those who are broken and humble enough to accept that they can't save themselves and that they believe that he saves them and they accept that free gift. He says, if you have belief, you believe in him, you'll have life in his name. This is not a belief like the devils have belief. The, the Satan believes that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. He knows that it happened. But that's not saving belief. The saving belief that we find all through this book of John is the type of belief that, that has a heartfelt trust in so much so that it changes everything. It, it, it changes. It's, you got, they got a message and you believe that, that you, you ran towards that message. You, 
He rose from the dead, and so it means a new way of living and trusting and hoping. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to conclude here, but I want to say to you, I want to end with John 20, 15 through 16. Jesus said to the woman, that's Mary Magdalene, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? If you're here, what are you weeping about in your life? Um, She was weeping because they had taken her Savior, her Lord, the one she believed in, and they just took him away. Why are you weeping? All of us are broken and needy because of our sin. And, and what Mary needed is to hear the voice of Jesus say, Mary. And immediately she believed. I, Thomas needed to see the Savior, and immediately he believed. John, Jesus had written earlier on, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they know me. Oh, do you hear the voice of Jesus? Will you believe? If you believe, keep following him and rejoice and make it your life's goal to both worship him and to help others believe this great news. Jesus said to Thomas and he says to us, Do not disbelieve, only believe. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude with singing, I pray that if there is anyone here in this room that has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they would be saved. And Father, I pray that they would follow you and be baptized and follow you in their lives as disciples of Jesus Christ within the body of Christ, wherever that may be. God, would you work in our midst? And Father, for all your disciples here today, oh God, rekindle our joy and belief in the fact that you are the, your Son is the risen Savior who has given himself for us. Oh Father, your love is great. Help us to believe and hear his voice. In Jesus' name, amen.